You're listening to the best of the day. I say you the, you the best. Halford and Bruff. Six thirty-three on a Thursday. Happy Thursday, everybody! Halford Bruff, Sportsnet six fifty. Sick tune. Halford Bruff of the morning is brought to you by the Delari family of Acura dealers. Experience the Delari difference today by visiting your nearest Delari Acura dealer today. To the phone lines we go. He is the former head coach of the Vancouver Canucks. He is now a senior advisor with the OHL's Niagara Ice Dogs. Bruce Boudreau joins us now. On the Halford and Bruff Show on Sportsnet 650. Good morning, Bruce. How are you? I'm good. How are you guys? We're good. Thanks for taking the time to do this. Uh, let's talk about the new gig. Uh, how excited are you to join the Ice Dogs? And not only that, but work with your son, Ben, who's an associate coach for the team. Yeah, well, it's always been a goal of mine to work with uh, my children and and to be able to, to, you know, whether it's a very small capacity that I'm doing or or not uh, uh, to work with him is is great, especially in a in a town uh, we we uh, he grew up in totally, and I lived there from '81 to probably in the 2000s, and we still have our hockey school there. So it's a uh, it's it's uh, an exciting opportunity. So were you in the Leaf system then when when Ben was born? Were you between St. Catharines? They were the the farm team for the Leafs and the Leafs at that time. Yeah. Yeah, and so I I uh, played for them in St. Catharines, and uh, it's only an hour from uh, Toronto. So I bought my first home there, and that's where we started to re- relocate when uh, when the team went there. So what kind of coach has Ben? I think he's a good coach. You know, he's uh, he's won the East Coast League in um, in his second year coaching, and uh, made the playoffs every year, and. Um, so I mean, I think he's got a lot of great traits. He's very passionate, um, and you know what? He plays with great structure. <laughs> you know what, Bruce? I've heard that's so important. You just got to be really dialed up on the structure side of the game. The whole structure thing, yeah. No, he he's uh, he he's uh, he's good on details, and he's uh, he's going to be he's he's going to really help that team. Um, what kind of advice? Like, what 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 does your what does your job entail? Are you are you there just as a guy that's seen a lot of things in this game and can advise on on a, on a number of different areas? Well, I think so. But I mean, I'm going there Monday. Um, I'm in Hershey, PA, right now. I'm going there Monday, and I'll find out exactly what uh, what I have to do and and what the owner would like me to do, and go from there. Um, uh, I'm sure uh, I can help a little bit. I've won two Memorial Cups uh, and I've had 50 years plus experience. So uh, hopefully my knowledge, uh, if I don't go in there too crazy and um, try to do everything, which I won't, I'll be staying away for the most part, uh, uh, helps them. I mean, it's a, it's a team that really, really struggled last year and um, but it's a great hockey town, so I'd like it to succeed. 
You mentioned ownership there. What's your relationship like with one of the part owners of the team, Wayne Gretzky? I'll say that we had David Foster, famous musician on the show uh, a couple days ago, and he was very casually mentioning uh, my good friend Wayne, and then he stopped and said, that's Wayne Gretzky, in which Jason said, yeah, we didn't think you meant Wayne Primo. So we understood that, you know, some people have relationships with Gretzky. Are you you pretty familiar with him? Did you guys have a relationship prior to this? Yeah, I think we're good friends. I mean, uh, uh, I've known him for a while now, and uh, uh, we've golfed together. You know, I've been to his place and uh, and stuff. I mean, we we don't, you know, I mean, he's so busy. We don't talk all the time, but uh, um, I think the relationship with him is really positive. You did the foray into media on a number of occasions. Uh, What do you think about his foray into doing the the analyst work now uh, for the National Hockey League? Well, I mean, he's pretty dead on on everything he says. Like, I mean, uh, uh, he, the one thing about Wayne is he's a real student of the game. You would just know him as the greatest player of all time. But he's, he really knows details. He really follows the stuff you wouldn't think uh, he would follow. Like, one of the first times I went out for uh, dinner with him, um, he started – rattling off all my junior statistics and, uh, uh, and, and telling, you know, and, and remembering games that I'd played in junior that he grew up watching because we played in Brantford a lot of our home games. And, and I was shocked that he, a guy this good pays that much attention to things uh, that, that aren't really like you wouldn't think he's paying attention to you type thing. Do you ever talk to him about coaching? Because he sort of had that infamous stint behind the bench where a lot of people thought a guy that was that naturally good at everything at hockey yeah. wasn't fit to be a coach because he would be like, well, just do what I did. And all the players would be like, that's impossible. We cannot yeah, do that. Score 92 goals. Yeah, that, do that. That's, that's pretty hard to do. Um, but, uh, no, I haven't had a uh, – you know what? Over the years, I've probably talked to him about some stuff, but nothing really um, – uh, you know, like uh, too much detail at all with them. Right. So, you know, and now if I miss you for a second, I'm just turning the car off. Okay. okay. So it'll go back to my phone. Okay. So, okay. Um, uh, anyway, we are, can, I hope you, I'll do this thing where we reset. Uh, we are speaking with Bruce Boudreau, uh, former head coach of the Vancouver Canucks. Uh, he's now, uh, a consultant? Is that Can the... you hear me? Yeah, we got you back. Senior, with the, senior advisor. Senior okay, advisor good. with the Niagara Ice Dogs. Uh, Bruce, I want to talk to you about the role of the captain in, on an NHL team. Um, the Canucks are trying to figure out who should be captain, if they're going to name a captain. Um, what is the what is the most important thing that a captain needs to do? Well, I think... Uh... It's a different question because different teams are looking for different things. But I think a captain has to be the steadying influence with the group. Uh, he's got to be the guy when things start getting a little hectic to start to calm the players down, whether it's during a game or off off the ice. He's got to be able to read read the situation, like say, "Okay, boys, let's meet here. Let's talk about this. We're not, you know, I mean." Uh, and he's got to be able to be a guy that players can feel comfortable coming up and talking to him. And, you know, unfortunately he has all this, uh, these, these things to do and, and probably a lot more. Um, he doesn't have to be a rah-rah guy. He has to be a hard worker. He has to show the, the players that he's the hardest guy 
hardest worker on the ice type mm. thing and uh, and be a great example for the franchise. The uh, the composure, I guess that would, might be a good word, of of the captain. It, do, do you feel that as a coach too? Like I often feel like a coach when he's, you know, losing his mind behind the bench for whatever reason. Sometimes that's okay, but if it happens too much, it's it's all of a sudden like, who's the steadying hand on this team? Your wife's party? No. She's coming tomorrow. Tomorrow. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. I'm at a car dealership. I'm at a car dealership. My friend's got to get his car fixed, and my car's coming in tomorrow, and they're asking me all these questions. So, uh, uh, I'm on the radio. Yeah, come on. This is important. This is Vancouver Sports Radio. This is like a conversation with the president. Exactly. Yeah. Anyway, the other thing that the other thing a captain has to do is get uh, have a good rapport with the coach because the coach is going to lean on him, and you know sometimes I would come in and say, "Hey, listen, listen." Uh, I'll use uh, Ryan Getzlaff when he was the captain, and I say, "Getz, you got to talk to the players." Getz would come in after a period and say, "Coach, don't come in the room. I'm going to take care of this." So I mean, there's a lot of responsibilities that go along with a with a with a captain. I wanted to ask you about your time in Washington because we've often had that conversation that, you know, your captain's got to be your best player. But when you started in Washington, this is no disrespect to Chris Clark, but Chris Clark was the captain and Alex Ovechkin was there. And it felt like it was a matter of time before Ovi became the captain, which he inevitably did. Um, What do you do you subscribe to that theory that, you know, a captain at the very least has to be one of your best players, if not your best player? I mean, it it, it's. it worked out that way, and I think in the in the in the Washington the Washington situation, um, uh, Sid had just been named captain of, of Pittsburgh, and so it seemed like young stars were being named captains. So I mean, it, it was just uh, natural that Alex would would be the next captain there. Um, is there anyone that stands out for you on the Canucks as an obvious pick for captain? Well, I think you guys know who my my pick is already, but uh, uh, it's not up to me anymore, as you know. And uh, uh, I think there, there'd be a couple good guys. I, I think Petey, if he stays there, is going to be uh, a great captain. I mean, he's not going to be – he's in very much like the Sedins. He's not a loud guy and a quiet guy, but he is definitely a leader. He wants to be put in the position and uh, to lead. And he wants uh, all the responsibility on the ice. So I think he'd be a good choice. Um, I wanted to ask you about Brock Besser because we were just talking about him earlier. They had, the Canucks are doing their skates out at UBC. And he, you know, a couple day, every day another couple guys meet with the media. Yesterday it was Besser. And he talked about how difficult the last year especially, but the last couple of years have been. And how he's hoping to rebound from it. Uh, you were around for a lot of this with you know him dealing with the loss of his father. And there were injury issues. And there were trade rumblings out there. Uh, what was it like watching a player go through those kind of struggles? Well, it was tough because you knew it was weighing on him. And uh, uh, all you could do was sit there and support him. That was the the biggest thing. And uh, and if he needed to talk to you, you, you talked to him. And uh, um, so, I mean, that's, that's – you knew I, – I, and I told him, I said, whenever he – if he wanted at any point in time that he had to go home and visit his family, then – just uh, go home and and if we'd go out east 
and he might leave a day early to get an extra extra day in with his family. So, I mean, that's, that was the thing with him. Uh, Bruce, I want to thank you for taking the time to do this today. We really appreciate it. Congrats on the new gig uh, in the Ontario Hockey League. Best of luck with everything this year, and uh, we'll do this again soon. Yeah, absolutely. You guys take care. Good luck this year. Yeah, thanks. Appreciate thanks, Bruce. It, Bruce. That's uh, Bruce Boudreaux, former head coach of the Vancouver Canucks, now a senior advisor with the OHL's Niagara Ice Dogs. That was a very Bruce Boudreaux interview. <laughs> yeah, I think he did eight different errands during that interview. <laughs> He, he he went through at least two different cars. <laughs> I, I yeah, I think he admonished someone from a car dealership because he, he was on the phone. I'm like, you could also just stand outside the dealership. <laughs> We're not that important. Yeah, like, do, um, just do just do a few uh, do a variety of things. Sorry guys, I'm going through a car wash here. I'm like, <laughs> yeah, I might lose you for a sec. I, okay, God, so that, okay, in his defense, hold on. In his defense, I have heard a bunch of his interviews because he does Sirius XM yeah. Radio NHL. He does that all. That's just Bruce. Right? Yeah, yeah, that's Bruce. Yeah, I think they got him going through a drive-through once. He's like, hold on, I'm getting a coffee. And they're like, okay, <laughs> we'll wait. Oh, that's Bruce. I'll get a muffin too. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the secret to hockey success is uh, two double Big Macs. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, guys. Sorry, sorry. Um, that was very funny when he said uh, the structure thing. You know, he's he was talking. I, I, was I think like, he's in on the in the, in the oh. Do you think the so? Joke a little oh, you bit. Think so? I think you think so? Get the vibe from that. Yeah. Um, he's still clearly a little bit frustrated too, right? Like he, sure. he's using a sense of humor as you know. In a good way, and that's mm-hmm. why everyone likes Bruce because he, ha- he he has those quips. But that was very funny because, uh, and and if you're just joining us, uh, I'm sure we'll post this on uh, on social media. But I asked Bruce what kind of a coach his son was, Ben, who he's going to be working with in Niagara, and he said, "Oh, he's a good coach, and you know, he's really good with structure, lots of structure, lots of structure, oozes structure, yeah, habits, accountability, very important things. Like he knows." He knows what happened. He knows what, you know, what the media was saying, what the fans were saying. And, of course, he knows what management was saying. And, you know, he's just trying to make the best of it, right? Mm-hmm. Like, let's be honest. Last season was not good for his... Um, brand? Brand, yeah. Like, his brand... In some ways, it was good in that people said, you know, Bruce handled that with a lot of class and everyone, of course, was... You know, seemed like everyone uh, outside of the Canucks was on Bruce's side, but it still hurt to be essentially hung out to dry, like mm-hmm. Bruce Boudreaux was. Right, mm-hmm. like they just kept marching him out there as the head coach, and everyone knew that he was not the coach that management wanted. Uh, you know how we knew this? Because uh, they told us. Yeah. Right. We was it, in hindsight. Like I just want to. I just want to say like that story. Um, is the perfect example of like people were saying like, oh, the media is trying to make a big deal out of this. The media is trying to make a big deal out of this. Like he wouldn't be the coach if they didn't want him to be the coach. If you said that at the time, like think back on that and be like, hmm, maybe I did misread that situation. Mm-hmm. Maybe it wasn't just the media in Vancouver making a big deal out of something. Yeah. That was one of the most bizarre coaching situations I have ever seen in the NHL where there was a guy behind the bench that was beloved by 99.9% of the hockey world. And he was constantly getting run down by his own team. Mm -hmm. I'll, I'll maintain. I mean, I said it at the time 
And I'll say it again. And I'll probably say it at any time we reflect on the Bruce There It Is era that um, I didn't I didn't put the, the struggles of the team at his feet. I know, I know that he was not the kind of coach that they wanted with regards to things like structure and systems and everything else. I get it. Mm-hmm. I get it. I get that Taki came in and was like, uh, I'm going to teach you guys exactly where to be on the ice because the previous guy didn't teach that. I understand all that. I still don't put it at the feet of Boudreaux. You know why? Because Boudreaux's coached over 1,000 games in the NHL and has an over 600 winning percentage. You don't always do the best job every time you have a coaching assignment, though. I don't, I listen, I, I, I disagree with you on that, and that's fine. You we bring can in that particular coach for a particular team. If you need a team that needs structure, then don't bring in Bruce Boudreaux. But he's won in a bunch of different places, yeah. a lot of hockey games. Listen, it was very dysfunctional. The whole from the owner hiring Bruce and then hiring the management and then the management going, yeah, I'm fine for Bruce for this season and then basically being told, oh, you got him for next season too. Oh, I didn't want that. Right. Uh, the fans also loved Bruce, so it was going to be tough for management to fire Bruce Boudreaux mm-hmm. and then bring in their own guy. Um, when I watched the team play, though. I don't think I'm not I'm not going to say that Bruce had no responsibility for this. He was the head coach and they looked awful. They looked like you just look at the situation and you're like they look like a badly coached team. You know, maybe some of the teams that Bruce coached in the past, more veteran teams like Minnesota, maybe they had the type of veteran players that knew what to do, right? So if you're saying like we're the Canucks, you cannot possibly say were the Canucks well-coached last season and say, yes, they were well-coached. It just doesn't mesh with the team you're watching on the ice. Either, it, it, I, I don't know how you can say it. Like when, so when you're saying like it's, Bruce wasn't, wasn't any of the problem last season, like how do you defend that? I'm going to say I'm not going to blame what happened on Boudreaux because there was obviously far more, far more than coaching last year. Well, yes. Obviously, but right. everyone's got to take their bit of blame. I've certainly blamed ownership, management, the players. It was such a disaster that I don't think there was anyone, with the exception of maybe like Petey and Quinn, that accepted no part of the blame last season. It was a disaster all around, and that's why it's even more important that the Canucks put all that behind them. Like, we just had a little mini-argument that represented five months of the season last year mm-hmm. where we'd come in and, and argue about this disaster of a team where things were going wrong all the time, on the ice, off the ice, executive level, coaching, player level, and all of a sudden you're just like, and then, and then the Canucks are out of it by what? Like, I don't know, November of the season, they were pretty much out of it. So all we had to do for the rest of the season was essentially argue about how you go forward with this team. Put that behind you and show the fans, show the players, show everyone in this city that you're a bit more of a well-oiled machine. Just a, Even just a little bit of oil, you don't have to be well-oiled. Just have some oil on the machine. Yes. Do you know what I mean? Like, the, the machine thing. needs a bit of oil. Um, so someone just texted in, the Canucks will look like a badly coached team again after 10 games this season. I suppose that's the great like barometer or litmus test or whatever. 
is if they come back this year and there's no real signs of improvement in terms of structure and improved penalty kill and where guys need to be on the ice, then you're going to have to say, maybe it's not the coaches. Maybe it's the players. Maybe it's the group. I'll be very curious to see the particulars, the tiny particulars within this team in terms of are they in the right spots? Uh, Are the penalty killers being, um, you know, position probably do they have the right penalty killing all the sorts of things that we chalked up to poor coaching Taki gets to see it play on a real time and I think more importantly for Taki he gets a team not totally renovated to fit his style of play mm-hmm. but made a couple of additions that gave them a little bit more grit and sandpaper that fits what he wants to do better Susie Bluger etc cetera, etc cetera. not you know, Ian Cole not over the top signings where you're like that guy's going to be a huge difference maker but the team is tailored a little bit more to the style that Tocket wants to play I think we did want to talk about uh, Brock Besser here to end the segment here on the Halford and Bruff Show on Sportsnet 650. This is your home of the Canucks. We should get some Canucks talk into the intro. So as we as we start talking about practice and not even practice, pre-practice out at UBC, Canucks are skating. Different guys are meeting with the media. Yesterday it was Besser talking st- about practice. That was Brock Besser. Actually, it wasn't. But uh, Brock Besser was the guy that met with the media yesterday, and a lot of the questions, not surprisingly, were about the trade that never came to fruition. His recommitment to wanting to beat in Vancouver and stay in Vancouver? And can he return to a form of his previous self? And Besser had a lot of things to say about how difficult the last few years were, uh, including, the hur- including the hurdle that he had to get over mentally to get back to where he hopes he'll be a contributing member of the team. Here's Brock Besser yesterday from UBC. Yeah, I'd say, you know, last year was... Uh definitely a hurdle mentally and um it was a little different um obviously you know you're still dealing with you know that loss of my dad so um we figured it out and you know we kind of got over that hump I feel I feel you know you come to you know I, I think you don't come to the the piece at first and you sit there and wonder you know why certain things happen but I think I've come to that piece and our family is you know I think this summer was really good and we've all kind of found that piece so um, you know, in that regards, it's a, lot, it's a lot better. I feel a lot better mentally. I feel really motiv- motivated right now, and I'm really excited to get camp going. The Canucks need a good Brock Besser. Like, I know a lot of people have kind of, like, in their minds, kind of put him on the back burner. Like, yep. they don't expect much anymore. Um, but he's probably going to be on a line with JT Miller and possibly Ilya Mikheyev. To start the season, if Ilya Mikheyev, by the way, is ready to start the season. That's a whole other thing. We can maybe get into that later. Uh, But Brock Besser is going to get the opportunity, right? Like It's going to be him and Connor Garland, essentially on that right side, fighting for a spot in the top six. Mm -hmm. Kuzmenko's probably going to start with Petey, right? You assume that. Right, yep. Bovillier's in the mix too on these wings, you know, and sometimes they'll they'll cross over. But Besser has the ability to play on a pretty good line with J.T. Miller and Mikheyev again, if all those guys are healthy. Mm-hmm. Um, mostly Mikheyev, who's reco- recovering from a torn ACL and and surgery. Um, but you know, there is a chance still that Brock Besser comes back and plays well. I'll be very curious to see what he looks like out on the ice because apparently he's changed up some of his fitness regimen. Yeah, he's, he's lifting differently. He's got a new weightlifting trainer. 
Okay. Those words. Are they, was Sound he, right? how, how was he, was he lifting them the wrong way before? Yeah, actually, he, lifting, he, he got he, asked he was, I was lifting them down. I was he, lifting them down. <laughs> I was mostly putting them down on the ground. <laughs> Someone told me I should put them up in the air. No, he said that it was actually like a technique thing in terms of like the way he was lifting and what he was doing. So I do wonder if they looked at him and said, there are certain things that you can do in terms mm-hmm. of, I don't know, explosiveness or pliability or those other buzzwords that they use in the gym. Bigger story for me is I really hope I really hope that he can get his game back on track because I actually really like Besser. Yeah. I always have. Um, I thought that uh, we've probably been as critical as his on-ice play as anybody because I'm going to be dead honest. At times, it was kind of underwhelming and uninspiring. He, he was terrible defensively to start the season last year. But just yeah, just yeah. one of the worst defensive players in, in the league. Um, that area, I suppose, bounced back a little bit, but it couldn't have gone down. But I know everyone focuses on the on the offensive side of things, but he needs to be better defensively too. And he's talked quite openly and quite candidly about how difficult the last two years have been. He even, I mean, he had an interview with IMAC and Sportsnet back in April where he said that he started resenting hockey because being in Vancouver, playing on a nightly basis during the regular season, kept him away from his dad while his dad was passing away. So he, and he didn't try and, dance around the subject. He yeah. said, I'm trying to explain it right, but it was a hard thing. This is the best of Halford and Bruff. Download the full show through Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to the best of the day. Halford and Bruff. Seven thirty-two on a Thursday. Happy Thursday, everybody. Halford Bruff, Sportsnet six fifty. Halford Bruff of the morning is brought to you by the Delari family of Acura dealers. Experience the Delari difference today by visiting your nearest Delari Acura dealer today. We are in hour two of the program. Kevin Woodley from NHL.com and Ingle Magazine is going to join us here in just a moment. Uh, hour two of this program is brought to you by North Star Metal Recycling, Vancouver's premier metal recycler, pays the highest prices on scrap metal. North Star Metal Recycling. They recycle, you get paid. Visit them at 1170 Powell Street in Vancouver. To the phone lines we go, NHL.com, In Goal Magazine. And now here on the Halford and Bruff Show, it's Kevin Woodley. Morning, Kev. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Although, you know, like <laughs> metal recycling, I got some golf clubs I should probably take in there after the way I played yesterday. Ooh, where'd you, uh, where'd you play yesterday? Well, quick shout out to um, Ronnie Patterson, now in the BC Hockey Hall of Fame for all the work he does at Kids Sport. I was part of the uh, Kids Sport golf tournament out at Hazelmere yesterday with Sportsnet 650's own Joey Kenward. So they do a really good job and raise a lot of good money, uh, a lot of money for a lot of great causes here locally, help kids play sports. So yeah, I had to get that shout out out of the way, even though my game deserves to be at a metal recycling event. Can you share with us just how bad it was? Just tell me what you shot. I love asking that because that's what Don. It was a scramble, so I didn't even have to be that good. Oh. I contributed. Like you know all those memes about your scramble team. Like with the, I, I'm the guy that didn't do anything but comes in dancing, looking funny at the end. Yeah, that's me. Uh, have you been out at UBC over the last few days? I have not over the last few days. I was actually out last week though, um, before the the media crowd arrived, before everybody arrived. But there were other there were there were some big names there already, and uh, it was a little more low key and a little more. You could have a little more of a conversation as opposed to a formal scrum, which is, which is kind of how I like it. Um, 
it's funny, eh? Like uh, the season starts at training camp, but not in this market. And no. and I and it's interesting because it's one of the things that a handful of players really don't love, to be honest with you. Well, I'm not surprised, right? There's, I was joking the other day. I'm like, we're not even talking about practice. We're talking about the practice before practice. But yeah. that's the reality of the situation. It is. Yeah, yeah. I'm not, I'm not judging anything. It is what it is. And uh, if I didn't have prior commitments, I will be out there this week at some point. That's just uh, once everybody is, you sort of have to be. It's the job. So in those more casual conversations of the ones, you know, where it's not necessarily a scrum, did you get the sense of urgency and expectation for the start of the season? We've already started the hashtag, hashtag the start. Like we are fully cognizant of the fact that everything that's going on right now, having this abundance of guys out at UBC way before preseason, you know, everything is laser focused, hyper focused on the first 10 games of the season. Did you get that vibe from the players and speaking with them? Yeah, a little bit. And, uh, you know, I mean, I knew that everyone was supposed to be back in town this week. That was the, what the leadership group had asked. Um, and so the fact that, you know, cause I know a talking point, the week before was that, Hey, like, you know, that, you know, Rick talking about mid August didn't happen and why and practice ranks. And I gotta be honest with you. Like, Hey, I've, I've beat the practice rink drum as hard as anyone and probably longer than anyone in this market. It was more than a decade ago that I was in Montreal with, well, it tells you how long ago it was. It was with Mark Andre Fleury, Corey Crawford and J.S. Jaguar. And they could not believe that Vancouver didn't have a practice facility as we were um, doing an event at the Montreal Canadiens practice facility. And here we are all these years later, and it's still an issue. So believe me, I beat that drum harder than anyone. It's, it's frankly embarrassing for the franchise. That said, I don't think it makes a difference in this case. Um, when you look at how some of these guys train, where some of these guys train, how important it is for some of them to be where they are. I mean, I think of like Quinn Hughes with his brothers, uh, his dad and all the high end NHLers that he skates with, like that's important work for them. So this, this is, this is a full two, almost three weeks lead up. This was the plan. This is what the leadership group asked. Uh, and, and this probably wouldn't have differed even if they had their own facility. That said, um, the fact that everyone's back and, and there is that sense of urgency around this. The interesting part to me was a conversation I had with Rick Tockett for NHL.com a week earlier where inevitably that comes up as it's going to come up in almost every sort of interview leading up to the season, the importance of a quick start because they've been so bad the last couple of years. And the one thing he sort of wanted to stretch, like I think they all know it's important, but there's a fine line there between everybody understanding it and getting too worked up about it if the first two don't go their way, right? (laughs) Like, you, you know, he talked about they can't panic you know, and if they lose the first two, game three can't be. <laughs> this is a running joke in Vancouver. Is it? Are we in must-win territory? Like we can't get into that from a mindset standpoint um, that early in the season. They can't as a team. They can't afford to heap that much more pressure on what's already going to be a pressure-packed start. So, yeah, it's. I mean, it's it's going to be a focus and it's going to be important. It's going to be interesting to see how they, as individuals, react. Um, to to that pressure if if there's a chance for it to build early in the season. I think they just have to accept that it's going to be there. Like There is going to yep. be noise. And if the, if they lose the first two games, which is perfectly, uh, considering, you know, it's perfectly possible considering they're playing the Oilers, and the Oilers, I think, are going to come in hot because I think they're still mad about losing to Vegas, and they're a pretty good team. Um, I think... I think it makes it easier if you just accept that there will be some noise if that happens from the media and from the fans. It's kind of like 
if you boil it down to a big game, you know, if you say we want to get off to a good start, we want to get you're constantly saying you're, you want to get off to a good start, and then you lose the opening faceoff, and the other team goes down in the ice and and scores, and you're kind of like, oh my god, how are we going to react to that? And that's one of the big jobs of a coach is to prepare your team for things to not go your way. Right. And I think one of the things that we've seen with this Canucks team is like when something doesn't go their way, and these aren't my words, these are Rick Tockett's words. When something doesn't go their way, um, it it tends to snowball a little bit. Like so it's almost like you want to have a good start, but you also at the same time want to be prepared for things not to go your way because it's not gonna go perfectly. Well, I mean, not just Rick talking, but like Bruce Boudreaux used to talk when he first arrived and, and throughout his time here about that, that woe is me attitude that sets in and how quickly it can set in with this group, right? So um, as much as talk it talked to me um, a couple of weeks ago about, you know, trying to maybe ease some of that pressure, he's also talked, like I saw the, the Q&A he did with, with Ian McIntyre, which I really enjoyed, um, about you know, how do you handle pressure? Like meeting pressure with pressure. And, and so clearly they're trying to change that and get out of that mindset as a group. Um, you know, I think that probably has something to do with, with some of the characteristics of some of the players that they brought in. Uh, and, and so, yeah, like now <laughs> you know, we've got three weeks or more to go, but this is going to be a focal point and a talking point until they get through that start and mm-hmm. until they sh- show that they can deal with the pressure that comes with that and until they show that they can get off to a good start and not put themselves behind the eight ball like they have all these years. God, how much of this is going to fall on Thatcher Demko's shoulders? Well, hopefully not as much, right? Like, again, um, and I should have, my apologies, guys, I'll have them ready to go long before the season, but like the metrics defensively under Tockett were a lot better. You know, they were no longer asking their goaltenders, as I've been saying for years now. And it, and especially, like, if the second half under Boudreaux, when he first came in and they had that run, was goaltender-driven, like, they were worse defensively last year. Like, it was it was terrible. And the, guy, the guy that got hammered by it the most, because don't forget, Demko missed most of that with injury, caused in part by all the laterals. Um, but, like, Spencer Martin bore the brunt of it. So I'm really excited to see what he can do behind the structure that Talkett brought. The metrics are really good. Like the underlying numbers on five on five uh, high danger chances against, you know, they went from bottom five to, I think they flirted with top five under Clearside Analytics numbers under Rick Tockett. And okay, listen, yeah, you got some teams that maybe were no longer as focused on you as they might be at the start of this season, right? Mm-hmm. Because you were kind of already in, and also ran. But there was a lot of positives there. And so maybe. You know, Thatcher Demko, Demko doesn't have to play at a Vesna Trophy level every night for them to have a chance, right? And that, that would go a long way because we, we know what he's capable of. Um, and, yes, they're going to need great goaltending. But for, for a number of years now, they've needed otherworldly goaltending, and the underlying numbers have sort of bore that out. And I don't know that that's going to be the case anymore. I certainly hope, and I certainly I think the plan in terms of the changes they've made is for that not to be the case anymore. And a big part of that is Rick talking, and a big part of that is who they brought in and their willingness, you know, like their ability to kill penalties, mm. which ties into, and this is another conversation we've had over, over the years, it's one thing to have the hockey IQ to be in the right lane on the penalty kill. It's another to have the willingness to eat a puck when you're there. And it's not a coincidence. They, they brought in a lot of guys who are willing to eat a puck when they're in and, and know how to be in the right lane on the penalty kill. And that's, you know, you talk about the Oilers, the first couple of games, like 
where did it all unravel for the Canucks in that first game last year? Because um, they got off to a good start. It was mostly on the penalty kill. Now, that wasn't just the best power play in the league they were facing. It was the best power play in the history of the league they were facing. And so that's not an easy start. But again, like so much focus on the start and so much focus on the penalty kill and for good reason because it it was basically their undoing on so many nights last year like as soon as you were shorthanded it's like here we go again and we just talked about that woe is me what settles in that that resignation uh and you couldn't help uh but sense that anytime they were shorthanded last year i mean there was a stretch last year where it felt like they were giving up two shorthanded a game right yeah. that's just it's just not going to work can't win that way and so you know hopefully improvements there make it so you know, Thatcher Demko can still give them greatness, but it's not required on a nightly basis just to have a chance. I'm still trying to wrap my head around the differences in the numbers that you've talked about, how bad they were defensively under Boudreaux versus Tockett. Was that a team that, I mean, you're talking about willingness to block shots, etc. Was that a team that under one guy wasn't willing to do the things that you need to do to be successful defensively? Or was that a team that didn't know what to do defensively? Oh, okay. So I think on the PK, cause it's got like, that's let's, let's be honest. The penalty kill was still, a, it was better and they scored a bunch shorthanded, but it wasn't great under Tockett. It wasn't great under green. Like yeah. the PK, I think you can honestly say has a personnel thing. And totally, that's, totally. that's mainly yeah. what I point out to like, again, you know, like, with all due respect, Oliver Ekman Larson knew how to get in the lane, but he wasn't going to eat a puck, and pucks got through him. And so, uh, me as a goaltender, I got to pick a side on the penalty kill. And this is all, you know, pre-programmed, formulaic part of a system. I got short side, you got middle lane. And so, if I'm looking around a, and I have to make a decision, I'm looking around a screen, and I can't cover both sides of it. I need to trust you to take that side of it. And so many times, like just so many times, guys were in lanes, but not actually in lanes because um, they weren't willing to eat a puck. And it's harsh, but it's true. And it was a big part of the penalty kill for years. And again, I think they've, they, you know, I believe in talking to people about the traits of the players they brought in that they've solved a lot of that. They've got the IQ to be in the right lane and the willingness to eat a puck while there. So that, to me, that's mainly penalty kill. The other stuff, um, you know, I think it's, it would appear from conversations, and this goes back to last year, like this goes back to in, during season, a conversation with all kind of players. Guys like Kyle Burroughs aren't even here anymore, right? Like long chats just sitting at the locker room about what's changed. It was, it was not sort of knowing what to do. Right. Um, more so than a willingness to do it. And, you know, they're just, you know, I, I hate to go back to the word structure, um, but a lot of the system under Boudreaux required individual decisions, right? And every time you see four guys going to the same spot and you don't need to be an NHL coach to understand that's not what's supposed to happen, there was just too many reads. It was read and and independent decision-making based, right? Like, so everybody had to make decisions based on what the other guy was doing, and it was very hard for them to get all on the same page. And that's, again, that can be personal too, right? They didn't have the hockey IQ as a group to figure it out. And you can, and, and some Boudreaux had had success with other teams that did, right? But yeah. for this group, it wasn't simple enough. As simple as that. It just wasn't simple enough. And it's been simplified. It's easy to, it's easier to understand and guys know what they're supposed to do. Yeah. And, 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 and the way that Boudreaux coached was like, it was a player's dream in a lot of ways. If the team is winning and if you have the players on the team that have the high hockey IQ 
and maybe more of a, I don't know, I don't want to say veteran team, just like a higher hockey IQ team, that can work really well. And that's why you saw Kevin Bieksa come into the dressing room at one point last season and talk about how you're lucky to have Bruce as a coach. He lets you play. But in some ways, what the Canucks needed was not someone to let them play, but to tell them how to play. In certain ways. In certain ways. Right, you don't want to micromanage, and sometimes that coaching style gets old real quack, real quack, real quick. You know, when when there's a guy like Daryl Sutter who is like micromanaging everything about the game, um, that gets exhausting. But it also works. Like Daryl Sutter has won Stanley Cups; he's been a successful coach. So it's always yeah, just—I guess it's always just finding a balance. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It, it it is. It is, and and clearly things skewed too far one way last year. And I think they feel comfortable with where that balance point is now. They feel comfortable with the with the guys they've brought in that can help the areas that it does. You know, again, when the penalty kill is that bad over that many different coaches and that many different voices, you know, clearly some of it was personnel and the things we've talked about. Again, we we pointed the same things for years. They think they fixed that. Um, and again, when you, when you talk to people that have coached and played with Ian Cole, I, I believe it, right? Like, I mean, he's aging. Could it all fall off a cliff? Maybe. But, like, I, I think he's going to have a major influence on the penalty kill, right? Like, because he is a guy who's going to be in lanes and eat pucks. And that, I, this sounds so corny, but that can become contagious, especially when you brought in other guys who are willing to do the same things, right? Like, this is what it takes to have a successful penalty kill. So I get, I hate to, I feel like I'm harping on the PK the whole time, but like, it's just, it was historically bad. It was almost historically yeah. bad for two seasons, right? Like you just, can't, you don't have a chance. You can't, you can't play on your toes and aggressive on the forecheck. If you worried every penalty you take, it creates um, hesitation throughout. If you're worried every time you're shorthanded, the pucks in the back of the net, mm-hmm. right? And we've talked before, like, Hey, can the goaltending be better on the penalty kill? Yeah, it can. But when there's backdoor tap-ins night after night after night, that's really tough to deal with for everyone. What is? I know we had this conversation before, but um, let's have it again because I, I don't. I think you've been chatting with Demko a little bit more. What kind of things has he been working on? Is there any dramatic changes to his game that we should be monitoring that might even be a tough challenge for for him to get a hold of before the season starts? No, I don't. I don't. I don't think we're talking about any significant changes. Um, and, and to be honest with you, other than sort of like in his game in terms of the style he plays, that was what excited me going into last season is I think he had Ian Clark's system pretty dialed in. And so there were things two years ago that he was still learning on the fly, but that wasn't going to be the case. Everything was just going to be fine tuning and maintenance. And then, and then his body let him down. So the changes to me are how he takes care of his body. And yeah, he feels really good about that. And so those are all positives. The one adjustment that I don't want to say I worry about, but that is going to be, I see again, I almost used the word. I just innately wanted to say challenge, but mm-hmm. it's going to be, it's going to be a process. It's going to be work for him is, you know, we are looking at a completely new top four and yes, the system is simplified. So it should in theory be easier for the new guys to all get on the same page within it. But for a goaltender reading off defensemen, 
It's not so much about X's and O's as it is individual tendencies. And this is something that, you know, I learned over the years from talking to goaltenders. And Ryan Miller was really good with this when he was here. Like, and Ryan, Ryan was a read-reliant goaltender, maybe more so than other guys, right? He was more about anticipation and, and reading body language and cues and things like that than he was just track the puck, stay, stay centered, stay squared, stay over top of it. Um, like there's, there's kind of a sliding scale there. And he was always on the read side of things, but for him, like it was months to get comfortable with the new defenseman and their tendencies. And we do pro reads at Ingle where NHL goalies sit down and watch video with us and review their decision-making processes and saves. The idea is if you're a young goaltender and you want to learn how to read the game, why not learn from the best? What cues are they looking for? Handedness. How are they making these reads in split seconds at a level that sometimes just blows my mind? And the information they process in real time blows my mind. And what's really been eye-opening in the three years and now the more 193, I think we have with 35 different goaltenders, including Patrick Demko at ingolmag.com, is how often the decision in terms of what depth do I take? What save selection do I execute? Um, am I, have I flattened out prematurely expecting a pass so I can shorten my distance to that pass on the back door? A lot of it isn't. Yes. We cue off of what the offense is doing and how the handedness is. And is he a one-time option? How's he holding the puck on his stick relative to his body? Is he a shooter pass threat primarily things like that? But where the defense is, what my defenseman is going to do is a huge part of that decision-making process, way more than I ever anticipated when I started this project three years ago at Ingle. And that's all going to be new, not just like, yeah, he's going to know Quinn Hughes, he's going to know Tyler Myers, um, but Philip Peronic is relatively new to him. Uh, obviously, the, you know, the in, in Cole – uh, they, like the guys they brought in this summer, Carson Susie, that's all new to him. And their individual tendencies and getting comfortable with them and trusting what they're going to do in certain situations, regardless of what the system says, there are personal tendencies that will require an adjustment period. And it makes me a little bit nervous because that takes time. And as we've started the show, they don't have a lot of time to all be on the same page and playing well. And so I think you can learn some of that in practices. Uh, I think you're going to see them scrimmage, uh, even within this captain's skate sort of dynamic. I wouldn't be surprised if you see them scrimmage this week because learning those individual tendencies of guys uh, matters, both in terms of defensemen playing off each other, and we're talking about all-new pairings, but also for the goaltenders to get comfortable with what those guys are likely to do in all these thousands of situations that could be presented and change dynamically in real time on the ice once the puck drops for real. Uh, real quick before I let you go, in an ideal world where Demko clicks with the new guys in front of him and the Canucks are winning games and he's healthy, uh, what's a realistic or what should be the goal for games played or appearances? Because if you look at the stats, it's really the elite guys in the NHL play 60-plus, but there's only, I think, seven of those from last season. So what would the number be for Demko? How how those guys do in the playoffs? Soros, nope. Hellebuck, out early. Your give out early. Ottinger did okay, but he was tired and Sorokin. Fatigue. Yeah, they got tired. I would, basically. Argue, I would argue Ottinger fatigued when it mattered. Yeah, more. sure. Vasilevsky, Sorokin. Period. Yeah, you could say these guys got tired. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, listen, at the end of the day, his body will give you this answer, right? Like this will, and this is why I love that the communication and, and that the goalie coach has a say and that his goalies are honest with him. 
how he feels will determine this. And they have to be careful if that goes the other way, as good as it is now, if it goes the other way at certain points, not to start pushing him into the point of diminishing returns. Something we used to talk about a lot with Jacob Markstrom. Hey, Jacob's playing okay, but he's at 75%. Can we get him back to 100 if we give him a couple starts off, and even if Anders Nelson hasn't won in a month? Those types of decisions. So the, ultimately, it'll be, it'll be him and his body and how he feels that determines this. But I think in an ideal world, like forget whether Demko's clicking or not, if the backups are playing well in an ideal world, um, you're staying under 60. Mm. And it's probably closer to 55. I don't think they're going to get there because I think they're going to need him more than that. Um, just because I think he's like he's an upper-tier elite-level goaltender in my mind. And I think we'll see more of that this season than we did, especially at the start last year. And you're probably going to, you know, unless you get out to an early lead and, and have a cushion, which I don't think any of us are predicting for this team in the, in the division or in the playoff race, you're probably going to need or want your best guy in the net more often than not. But perfect world, when you look at how those guys did in the playoffs, it's probably below 60 and maybe even below that. Kev, great stuff, man. Thanks for doing this. Uh, enjoy the weekend. We'll do this again real soon. Yeah, looking forward to it, guys. Beer league starts this weekend. So oh, good. Boom. I know. I got to play. I think I might have to play Sunday. I'm terrified, as always, every year. Good luck, Kev. You should try putting on all that equipment and dropping to the ice in a position that's not natural for the human body. I'm scared oh, I shirtless. I, 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 I normally drop into the fetal position. At, <laughs> in, at about the no position is the natural yeah, position yeah. for Jason Ruff and his body. <laughs> Thanks, Kev. Have a good one, guys. This is the best of Halford and Bruff. Download the full show through Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.